0: Deliberate deception to destroy essential services. The power greater than government. Greens to PwC, get thee to the knackery. And don't be conned by a radioactive gulf of Tonkin. Coming up on this week's episode of the Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 6th of July, 2023. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by Citizens Party researcher, Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Robbie. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about National Australia Bank lying its head off as it's... I once described it a few months ago as like this great big, you know, Godzilla-type thing stomping on branches all around Australia, just crushing those branches and those towns, and it's accelerated that massively... Um, again, with a great big middle finger to the Senate inquiry, but they're lying. They're deliberately deceiving the public and the government, and the government's got to take them on. We're going to talk about that. But then we're going to talk about how there is a power greater than government, Richard, and that's why NAB's doing this, because they are the power greater than government. We're going to show how that works. Um, there's interesting developments with PricewaterhouseCoopers scandal, but what Richard's going to highlight is the weakness of the powers that be to take this on, right? So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about, and actually, I've changed my mind, Richard. We're going to start with this. We're going to talk about the what we discussed last week, but it's but it's getting urgent. The the danger of a false flag attack in Ukraine, in Ukraine, um, at the Zaporozhye <coughs> nuclear power plant, right? Because um, uh, people want to blow, blow up the world in World War Three, and they're lying to do it. But we've got some pretty good reasons why you should not believe the, the President of Ukraine. Before we get into that quickly, just remember, um, help us get this out by liking the show, sharing it as widely as you can on all your um, socials and emails, etc. Subscribe if you haven't already, and remember, click the bell icon when you subscribe. Please comment below. Help us generate um, engagement with the show that way and, and uh, encourage the Google algorithm to share it more. Um, and also donate, the Citizens Party, there's a button below, the Citizens Party is not here for commentary, we're here for activism, we're here to in- intervene on these things that we're talking about, and we're running the campaigns that highlight these issues. If you can support us, please do, we appreciate all the support we can get. Um, but like I said, let's turn this over. Richard, we're going to start from the, from the bottom, because this is actually quite urgent. Last week we talked about this, um, Elisa and I did, um, but the the ukrainians are not backing off so you're getting this this line coming people would have heard it you're getting this line um uh coming out of ukraine that uh there's going to be the ukraine government is accusing russia of planning a false flag operation at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant Mm. so the ukrainians are accusing (laughs) the russians of that we're saying the opposite is true it's the ukrainians that are planning a false flag attack um and Zelensky is going so far as to actually say, claim that um, uh, the Russians are, are setting explosives yeah. around the reactors.
1: Claiming they've got intelligence of, uh, and the old trick about, we've got satellite Im- imagery, but they don't show it because it doesn't exist. Yep. That They've got cutters packed with explosives, that this and that, you know, like they were ISIS or somebody and not the biggest the second biggest and most organised professional military in the world and all the rest of the nonsense that you get told.
0: And just to clarify, Russia <coughs> controls the plant, right? Yeah,
1: they've they moved in and secured that. Um, I forget when exactly, but only just a couple of months into their special military operation, as they call it, um, uh, early to mid last year, yep. and have controlled it since then um, and have been managing the safety. And the Ukrainians have been shelling it since then. Yeah. Um, and yet we're supposed to believe that now Russia's going to blow that up because reasons. And,
0: and Russia yeah. would, would risk the radioactive fallout in the territory it controls and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, just, it's just nuts. Um, but we're supposed to buy into that kind of line because Russia is, is 100% evil and Ukraine's 100% oh, evil. Yeah.
1: And also because all this nonsense in the media about how Russia's losing. And it's funny how it's been losing constantly for a year and yeah. a half, and hasn't actually lost
0: anything. Well, so there's one. There's some information that I've seen this week that I think um, is everything almost people need to know about this. Because you're not going to. I'd be surprised if you see what I'm going to. Sh- what we're going to show you on the news. Um, but before we show it, who remembers Muhammad al baradei Muhammad al baradei If you're old enough, you might remember the name. He was never mentioned. He was never spoken of o- on his own. He was mm. always in in conjunction with another man who may give the, give be the hint. Hans Blix, Mohammed Al Baradei, and Hans Blix were the two weapons experts who repeatedly told the world mm. before the mm. invasion of Iraq that there was no evidence of weapons of mass destruction.
1: Yeah. So. Hans Blix was the chief of the weapons inspection yep. team and um, Baraday was the director of the International um, Atomic Energy, Atomic Energy Agency.
0: Agency. And actually he was Hans Blix's replacement. replacement. Hans Blix had also been a director of the IAEA, uh, yeah. and then, and, um, but he was, he was the weapons inspector and Baraday was the director general of the IAEA. So you had the director generals of the IAEA back then saying, there is no evidence of this. But of course they are ignored because you know the Anglo-Americans can't be wrong. And the rest is history, as um, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said in a recent interview. He said, "We killed more people in Iraq than anything we ever accused Saddam of doing." Mm. Right? That's that's what the end result of that. Are we going to d- repeat history by ignoring the current Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency? So I want to sh- I want to play two clips. The first one's from a few days mm. ago on France 24 where he is asked about this, and pay attention to his answer. And if the only reason it's not quite as hard-hitting as I'm being right now is because Raphael Grossi, the Director-General, is you know, he's an Italian. Mm. He's in Europe. Europe's all pro-Ukraine, yeah. pro-NATO, etc. So he's kind of constrained in how he can say it. But he is asked about Russia's plans to, to, to um, blow up the nuclear power plant, This is what he said on France 24.
2: In Ukraine, is saying Vladimir Zelensky a few days ago said that according to his intelligence, Russia has made all the preparation for an attack on uh, the plant, not an accident, an attack. His chief of military intelligence uh, said that preparations are being done. Russian troops have moved vehicles charged with explosives uh, into uh, the plant. Uh, They've mined uh, the cooling pond. You have a team on the ground. Is this what they're witnessing?
3: Well, I would never, you know, enter into an argument with the president of Ukraine, whom I know very, very well, and with whom I've been in contact regularly and meeting with him uh, personally. What I can say is I, I, I was there. Uh, I, I, I did not see this kind of uh, development. Uh, our teams are there and they are reporting every day uh, what, what's happening. I'm not privy to this intelligence uh, report that you are referring to.
2: Right. So uh, you don't think that uh, there will be a Russian attack on, on the planet? It's not what you're uh, seeing.
3: What I'm saying is that we don't see what you just said. Uh, in terms of the future, uh, I wouldn't be so, uh, you know, adventurous into getting to, you know, what is going to happen or not happen there. I think anything can happen. This is what worries me.
0: Yeah. Richard, that was a few days ago. Mm-hmm. So he said, and he, and he says at the end of that, you know, I don't know what might happen in the future. Well, he was asked again yesterday. Yesterday he was in Japan in Fukushima because he's there to talk that the Japanese are going to release water yeah, from the... Yeah, waste,
1: contaminated wastewater. Contaminated wastewater.
0: Waste so he was there. To, that's his job to, to sort of, you know, sign off on those sort of things, etc. He was there at Fukushima. So he's mainly talking about the, the Fukushima <laughs> issue, but naturally he was asked about this again. Look at his answer
3: as you know, um, uh, we have a permanent presence. There is a permanent uh, mission of the IAEA there. I have been in contact with them today, just a few hours ago. Um, we are aware of these uh, affirmations, these uh, statements, from both sides. You refer to President Zelensky's uh, statements, but uh, the Russian side has also come up with with, uh, some of these things. What I say is what I said at the United Nations Security Council. A nuclear power plant should never, under any circumstances, be attacked. A nuclear power plant should not be used as a military base. The IEA is there to uh, um, observe, to monitor this, and to inform the world community if uh, this happens. In our latest um, inspections, we haven't seen any mining activity, but we remain extremely alert. As you know, there is a counteroffensive ongoing, there is a lot of combat. I have been there a few weeks ago, and there is combat there, very close to the plant. So we cannot relax, and we will be uh, informing and updating uh, constantly. I mean, it's clear-cut,
0: right? Mm. They're there. This independent yeah. agency is there. Everything Zelensky is saying the Russians are doing, they should be able to see it if they're doing yeah. it. And he's saying, well, you're not seeing any of it. Yeah, to be clear, they've, when the Russians secured that plant,
1: back whenever it was last year, they called in the IAEA crew. <laughs> They wanted them on, on site to keep an eye on that power plant, because it had, uh, including because it had been damaged by Ukraine shelling its own nuclear power plant, yep. Because, um, it, and that was actually part of the reason that the Russians took complete control of it. They were jointly administering these facilities under a, under a de, not exactly a deconfliction agreement, mm. but there were, uh, and not the Ukrainian army, but there were local security forces whose job it was to do this stuff. Um and they hightailed it out of there um, in some of these places because the Ukrainian army was shelling them because they were there and so were the Russians. And so, so they called in, the, the, the Russians called in the IAEA to make sure that they had, were there to keep an eye on what was going on. Well,
0: now that you've told me that, I'm now worried that the next narrative that's going to form is how Russia somehow secretly controls the IAEA, mm. right? This is a sort of, these are the sort of lines that the um, Anglo-Americans are capable yeah. of spinning. Let's just talk... The last thing to comment on, though, is there is a lot of... There's there's good reason to be afraid that all this is... There is a false flag being planned. Mm. They're accusing Russia preemptively as the cover for what they plan to do. Um, As we we revealed last week, it's in collusion with these two crazy senators, Lindsey Graham Mm. and Richard Blumenthal, who've introduced this resolution that if an attack happens on the Zaporozhia plant and the radioactive fallout spreads across the border into a NATO member country, Mm. that will be seen as an attack on NATO and an Article 5 response. So that's what they're setting up. But there's reason to fear. They're setting this up to happen before the NATO summit in Vilnius.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: the one that um, Albanese and uh,
1: Prime Minister Chris uh, Hipkins from New Zealand, the new guy who replaced Ardern... um, both been pressured into going. Yeah, to they weren't going to go after they initially said, "Well, you know, we don't really need to go to that. You know, we've got
0: we went last. We're, we're
1: already supporting Ukraine, you know, and we've got things to deal with at home with all of this stuff that's going on." And so then they get squeezed by the Americans.
0: So that makes you worried that just that pressure that the fact we know that pressure was brought to bear. Mm. There's a lot of there's a lot being put on this NATO summit. Yeah right and if this happens just before the nato summit that nato summit may be world war 3 yeah
1: and I, and as for the planning of the actual operation i would my money would be on the brits as usual um, not just because i don't like the british establishment
0: <laughs> and your Irish. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but um, remember they're the ones who have been screaming about this the longest their experts yep. have been in there since 2014 3 days i think it was after that they 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 are uh, guys advising on these kind of operations set up the the disinformation networks um, that leaves anything they even accuse the Russians of doing in the dust. Yeah. Um, fake news outlets, pretend, you know, astroturfed operations. They're also the ones who proposed, basically their institutions, RUSI, the R- uh, Royal United Services Institute, have been proposing these kind of things openly for a yeah. year. Um, and they're the ones who gave... The Ukrainians, the weapons, that, the only weapons so far as I know um, that they've been supplied that would be capable of doing a strike like this, the Storm Shadow cruise right, missiles. Right. Because everyone, remember, as much as, as many weapons and things as the Americans have, and the rest of NATO have poured in there, they've held back on giving them the, the, the high-powered, longer-range hmm. um, missiles for the, um, for the missile launching systems that they've supplied them so that they don't go too far you know, off script. Yeah, it's the it's the British, like they've always done. Um, divide and,
0: perfidious Albion. Divide yep. and conquer.
1: Yep, um, learnt well from the Romans. If and, um our, and, our, uh,
0: our, our our friend, our mutual friend who's in the office here, Sleeman, who's been on, the, I think you might have done a show with him. Hmm. Uh, as he reported, revealed, told us that there's an Iraqi saying: if you come across two people fighting look for the British, they would
1: have started it. <laughs> yeah, and apparently the Persians say if you trip on a stone in the road, it was put there by an Englishman. <laughs> so I've been told. I don't speak Persian, but apparently. Um, but no, they. they um, this is what they do. This is They engineered World War One. Yep. They financed the Nazis into power in Germany to make sure World War Two happened. Um, and they try and, when their empire... And they stopped and, and peace the,
0: a year ago. They stopped peace yep, in they're the, Exactly. they're the ones Boris Johnson who it. flew in there to, to stop it. Um, All right, we should move on for the sake of time. Final word, if it happens, don't believe a damn word that comes out of the media that's going to automatically blame it, quote Zelensky and blame it on Russia. Ukraine and its demented backers would have done it. 100%, no doubt, no nothing, right? This is the kind of evil our side is capable of. That's why we've led with it. All right, let's get on to the other great evil, though, which is the evil of finance, which is not disconnected from all these things, (laughs) but... um, uh, deliberate deception to destroy essential services. And we're going to be talking about the National Australia Bank. Right now, National Australia Bank, which was the only bank to defy the Senate inquiry into regional bank closures. So they, the senators wrote to all the banks and Commonwealth said, yep, okay, and the, the senators asked, pause your closures while we have to conduct this inquiry till December. Commonwealth Bank said, yep, no worries. Westpac said, yep, we're going to pause the closures of these eight branches and secretly went and closed seven others. Mm. But they tried to hide that bit, so they tried to half-accommodate the Senate. ANZ said, well, our closures, are, our closures are too far gone. It would be more disruptive if we paused them. It would be more disruptive to the town. It would be more disruptive to the staff. Mm. It's like, oh, figure that cry me a river. Um, but they said, we won't do any more closures. National Australia Bank said to the Australian Senate, Sorry, for, sorry for, I apologize for being crude, but that is exactly what they did. They said, no way, no how, we are not going to pause our closures. Yep. And they have been on an absolute tear. So, just the last few days, get this here's, a, here's some of the um, uh, branches that they've either closed or they've announced Gilgander in New South Wales, Warren, Wellington, Condobolin; Gundagai, Tamora, Lake Cargelligo. And then in Victoria, I think Tatura is in Victoria. In Victoria, Tatura, Kilmore, and Kyneton. And the Kilmore branch closes today, literally today. And on the same day the Kilmore branch is closing, NAB has announced the Kyneton branch will be closed. And so the poor people of Kilmore who've been thinking, man, to go to the bank, I've now got to drive to Kyneton. Hmm. And they've been planning that for a few weeks. It's like 40 kilometres away or something. 40 minutes away. So that's, that option has been taken away from them, right? They are just on an absolute tear. Well, but, I'm
1: looking at these towns in New South Wales too. A lot of those are strung out along the main road.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um,
1: up through the middle of the country, or the middle of the eastern part of the country.
0: They're not they're not giving people much in the way of options, right, to go somewhere else. Well, they, they say they are. There's, we'll come to that in a minute. They're saying, oh, you can go to the post office, but we'll come to that in a minute. Um, however, breaking news, Dale Webster the independent journalist who writes for The Regional and um, was, has played such an important role in getting this inquiry up, she has caught NAB out deliberately deceiving the public and the Senate. That What NAB has been doing has been providing fact sheets to the branches that they've been closing. And those fact sheets we've talked about here before. So the first thing we highlighted from these fact sheets is how, um, you know, uh, NAB is just setting uh, quota-like targets and not really caring of the actual impact of what they're doing. So, for instance, they've said the, the fact sheets say, oh, 90% of the people at this branch are registered for online banking, mm. but in the same fact sheet admits that only 25% of them are regular users of online banking.
1: Mm. Which is to say the other 75% visit the branch. Which is, That's
0: right, that's right. So, but, but they don't care, They've, the, 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 the staff of these banks have reported that they're under enormous pressure to sign everyone up to online banking, and so we've made the point that, that these fact sheets prove that NAB and the other banks are not following the market, they're forcing the market, right, so they reveal that, but then they actually have figures of branch visits, and what Dale Webster was able to confirm, because for, the, um, for one of these branches, this fact sheet was slightly different than the other ones. They had this little uh, asterisk to add a caveat to their definition of a visit, and the caveat said over-the-counter interactions. And Dale Webster questioned that at NAB, and she's written an article about this, and NAB acknowledged that what they're t- all they're talking about, that they're counting as visits, is over-the-counter transactions. If you line up at the counter and actually transact at the counter, mm. that's, that gets counted no other reason to go to the bank gets counted. So when they're talking about bank visitation, the traffic is down, they're not counting Mm. the host of other reasons people go to these branches. Yeah. Which include, I mean, you might have your own view on that, but uh, 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 Dale covered uh, this in her article. we published it in our magazine this week. So sort out IT issues. That's one reason you go to a branch. Online banking that doesn't work. Which is, which will be a growing, like that, that's a growing reason for them to go, right? Um, and you quoted something in the media today about that, where the number one reason people in, in some kind of survey... Yeah, I forget
1: who did the survey, but it was um, saying that the main reason that they want to keep branches. cash and keep, keep bank ca- branches is because um, these online services are, are not reliable, and um, subject to fraud. Yeah, and yeah, massive amounts of fraud.
0: Yeah, so, so, so when you have a problem with online banking, often you have to go to the branch to sort it out, right? That's a reason people are going, and it's not counting, and that reason's going to go up, and they're not counting it. Um, provide proof of identity documents. Remove or add names to accounts. Appointments for term deposit changes to speak to staff about loans. Meeting with managers or any other activity that is not a deposit or a withdrawal. Mm-hmm. That's all not counted. Mm-hmm. And then if you think about it, of course it's not, because how is NAB, um, NAB doesn't have someone at the door, Richard, actually, you know, with a clicker, counting, counting everyone going in and out, yeah. right? They extract these figures from their computers, yeah. and the computers only register the actual transactions Transaction that data. happen at that bank, right? Yeah.
1: And, so there's, and so the deception is, instead of saying just transactions, they say, Bank interactions, as though it, to pretend yes. it covers
0: everything, when yes. they know damn well it doesn't. Exactly. So they are they are ripping away an essential service, absolutely ripping it away, and being deliberately deceptive to do it. Deliberately deceptive. And the problem here is um, not just you know that, that's the you could one could argue that's the nature of a bank. Um, not that it should be the nature of a bank, but we've come to expect that. This is the sort of thing the senators and the government must take head on. They cannot tolerate this kind of deliberate deception because of the huge impact it's having out there, especially in the regions where these people are losing their, their, their often their only bank in town, and then they've got to drive so far to get to the next one. But back to what bank um, NAB has been saying, oh, well, you can use the post office, you can use the post office. We've already reported here that, as soon as Christine Holgate was gotten rid of at Australia Post, the first thing NAB and the other and CBA and ANZ did was stop um, paying no, as much Westpac, money. Westpac, ANZ, West, not, not, yeah, not didn't... ANZ. ANZ just didn't care. Yeah. Westpac, CBA, and NAB all stopped paying as much money for the Bank at Post service, even though they all planned to send more people there. So that's the first thing they did. Now you've got a situation where, because of that kind of treatment of Australia Post and all the other chaos at Australia Post. Australia Post is closing post offices, Mm. right? And they are starting with corporate post offices. So this week, we got notified that we're in Coburg in Melbourne and just around the corner, but in the suburb where you and I live, Glenroy, Mm. the post office Mm. is closing, right? And it's a big corporate one. It's used by a lot of people, including and especially we're in a high... um, immigrant area, right? Mm. English is a second language kind of area. These people need face-to-face services mm. and the post office is a crucial hub for those po- face-to-face services. Yeah.
1: And a lot of culture, as one of the local members of parliament um, mentioned in a, a Facebook video, like a lot of the, just the culture, whether, you know, whether or not, uh, however good their English might be, there's a cultural thing where they, you know, they prefer to yep. do things these ways. They prefer to use cash for, just because that's what they do. And, you know, and so, well, you'd like to, the government and the banks like to paint everyone who wants to use cash as, you know, potential criminals. But it's just, it's what people, it's what people do. It's what they used to. It's legal tender and it's, throughout exactly.
0: Australia and its territories. So <laughs> it, it says so right on the note. That's Every right. Every single there, one of them. There's been right huge, next
1: to the RBA governor's signature.
0: There's been a huge backlash to this locally, and I just want to, I'll just read one of them. The local um, state mem state upper house member Evan Mulholland, who's a liberal actually, he wrote. all of them took to Facebook to post about this. He goes, I'm bitterly disappointed at the decision by Australia Post to close its Glenroy Post Office. So many people in our community rely on this post office for basic services like the paying of bills. When local banks have closed, brackets, there's been a few, they make the excuse that locals can go to their local post office. I'm calling on on Australia Post to reverse their decision and for the federal Labor government to intervene to stop it closing. Well, here's the bottom line, Evan Mulholland and Australia Post, and the government. The reason, so you've got, we've we've highlighted two essential services that are being withdrawn here, banking and postal services. The solution is to combine them. That's what we've been saying for three years now, right? A public post office bank, a national post office people's bank. If we set up a national post office people's bank where all these post offices overnight are the branch of a bank that's once again a people's bank owned by the people of Australia, where the profits stay in the system, right? And they, that, that help allows them to do cheaper loans, more flexible loans, invest in the kind of make the kind of loans the private banks won't do to help the communities. Put the instead of instead of taking deposits from the community and not lending back, but lending those deposits in the, the property bubbles of Sydney and, Mel, Sydney and Melbourne. Keep those deposits there, lend back into local communities, etc. Help everything work better that way. That's what our bank would do. Plus, the revenue because it'll get plenty of revenue will support the infrastructure of postal services. Mm-hmm. We've got a system in Australia where Australia Post is required by law to be commercial, right? Act, um, operate commercially. It needs revenue. This is the perfect source of revenue. If the banks don't want to be branches. If they, don't, if they don't no longer want to provide banking services and they don't care about the millions of Australians who either don't have internet connectivity or frankly just do not want to go down that path, want cash, want to stay um, with face-to-face services, if the, if the big four don't want to serve them, our post office bank will and will get plenty of business. Yep. Just like it does in New Zealand and India and exactly
1: Switzerland and Japan and dozens of other countries.
0: Exactly. That's... So the reason this is happening is not just because banks like NAB are being deceptive. It's because the two major parties in there are too weak to stand up to these deceptive banks. Which brings us to the next subject, Richard. The power greater than government. And we're actually talking about the banks. And I just wanted to, we've, um, I want to recount the, the, the experience that we've been having lately because we've been... We supported John Adams, the independent economist, in getting this inquiry up into ASIC, the bank regulator. And of course, when you have an inquiry like that, what comes up um, immediately is the plight of the victims mm. of the banks who were let down by ASIC. right? And so you end up talking about um, those cases, and we've talked about quite a few, and the minute you do, you attract all of their attention, like victims, all over the place, come out of the woodwork and want to talk to you. And frankly, you get overwhelmed by it because there's so many of them, mm-hmm. right? There's been a there's been a couple of decades of absolute financial carnage in Australia because our system of regulation let the financial predators off the hook. Um, so, I personally have been dealing with these victims, and a lot of them this week, actually, a lot of them this week. And one of them who um, Spoke to me last night. He 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 said something that I'm very familiar with. People saying he goes, before he became a financial victim and tried to deal with it and, and work through the regulators and just hit their brick walls. He said, "I didn't know my country was like this." Mm. Right? You think there's laws? You think you think that mm. fairness will prevail? This is, after all, Australia. Yeah, <laughs> democracy. We're told the land of the fair go. Yeah. Right? All that rule of law. You all think that, of that? You think that? Um, Is what happens, wait until you actually come up against it, right? And that's why there's so many of them and they're completely unresolved. But then I want to highlight this part because this this gets to the nub of the issue. Three people, actually, I said two this morning, technically it's three. In one week, three people separately, independently of each other made the point to me that the biggest problem in Australia is the banks are more powerful than the government. One of those is a person of great experience in the small business community who has had a lot of experience dealing with bank victims. He's not a bank victim himself, but he's, he's advocated for them. He's, he knows how small business operates. That's, that's the, the, the field he's in. He made that point to me most firmly. Yesterday, a person walked in off the street who I actually knew. Um, I haven't seen him for quite a few years, but he walked in off the street and he gave me an update on his financial case as a bank victim. I'll give, I'll give you one detail about his case. This is a guy who, um, when the banks were just complete, pre-Royal Commission, they were, um, like they didn't, at least today, they probably try and pretend they're not doing the wrong thing. Back then, they didn't even care. So what they did was, um, he got signed up to a he's, a, he's a farmer, he got signed up to some kind of a credit mechanism with all these moving parts, right? And he ended up, in millions and millions and millions of dollars in debt, losing a big chunk of a large property and, and stuff like that. And and um, and he, he, he got in a forensic accountant to go through his case, really thick case. The forensic accountant showed that if this, at a time when interest rates were 3%, if this guy had borrowed at 8.9%, nearly 9%, mm-hmm. and had all the conditions, all the farming conditions he'd gone through, etc., but all the... All the fluctuations in financial conditions. If everything had been the same, and he had a much, he had a, he was paying a much higher interest rate all along. He would have been out of his debt problems within three, two to three years. Mm-hmm. Instead, he, because of what the bank signed him up to, knowing it was much better for them, instead he ended up laden with, you know, double and triple the amount of debt he agreed initially agreed to and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? Um, this this is just one case. That's an example of a bank saying, you know, not how can we help this customer? They're mm. saying they're saying how can we use this customer to sign up to a product that'll give us maximum bonuses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And mm. that went on across the board. And that's one of the reasons there's so many of them. So he said to me when he was giving me an update, he said, you know, and he's he's just talking about how it's been a brick wall. He said the banks are more powerful than the government, mm. right? He said that to me. And then the third person. Actually, brought this to my attention, and want to play. I want to play a um, uh, a clip in a second, but um, he brought he, uh, James Shipton in 2019 was the boss of um, ASIC, the regulator. Mm.
1: He was appointed in 2018 in the middle
0: of the royal commission. Exactly, his first year as well, the, sorry, as, the end of 2017. His first year as the chairman of ASIC. He was because he'd come from Hong Kong, right? Mm. He, he's not to blame for any of the the previous banking bad banking practices. He'd come in as an outsider. He's the chair of ASIC. And for the whole first year, he's watching his agency be flowered alive by shock and awe, mm. uh, Rowena or at the Royal Commission, right? Um, and so when that Royal Commission concluded, he, like all the politicians claimed to, signed up to the recommendations of the Royal Commission, mm. including the, the the very memorable one from Justice Hayne, who said, why not litigate? Yeah. Right? Because there was like, they had these other this other practice of enforceable undertakings, yeah, which they didn't enforce <laughs> That's by right. and large. That's right. That's right. Um, so he he decided to apply the law. The law was there, and he decided to apply it. Now, the first this the small business expert who told me the government the banks were more powerful than the government. He gave me two examples of it, and the first example was in 2016 in South Australia. The South Australian government decided to put a tax on the banks-hmm of course the banks did not like that at all and it was a, a tax going to raise something like three to four hundred million dollars right so out of 30 million billion dollars in profit mm. it wasn't going to destroy say, it's them
1: like, yeah, one- tenth of one percent of their profit even is... if
0: even if though it set a precedent and that's the were worried about that, that that if South Australia got a bank tax up all the other states would want one as well so you can work it out pro-rata that if, even if they had all copied it, mm. that would have been like two to three billion dollars. Yeah, right. So that so still there's only seven profit. states
1: and territories. We don't have yeah. fifty of them like the Americans. That's all right. Still,
0: still plenty of profit. Still plenty of profit. But of course, no way, no how, where the banks were untouchable. So what did they do? They stopped lending to South Australia. Mm. Suddenly, it became very, very difficult in South Australia to get a bank loan. Mm. And as as my um, small business expert source said, it's not bank spending that makes. The economy—it's not government spending that makes the economy go around. It's bank lending, Mm -hmm. right? Bank credit from banks is the is the blood in the in the arteries of the economy, right? If they if they hold that back, and you think, well, hang on, there's four banks and there's a bunch of smaller ones, but there's four big ones. How can how can they all do this at once. Mm-hmm. What, how indeed? Well, and, then, <laughs> and to quote Justice Hayne again, when he put him on the spot, are you acting they, as one? And they had to admit, yes, they are. That's called a cartel. They are a cartel, right? And that's what they did. So they they did something that would that is entirely illegal, but they've got the... It's an extortionate power they have over the government. And South, until South Australia backed down, that's what the banks did. And his other example was in 2019. This period, straight after the Royal Commission, James Shipton says we're going to start litigating, mm. right? He dropped enforceable undertakings. The number of court um, actions against banks went up. He, he employed as, a, as head of enforcement a guy named Daniel Crennan, who uh, infamously to the banks said, the banks should fear us, mm-hmm. right? And I, I suspect those were his um, uh, political last words, really, <laughs> right? That signed his political death warrant, um, and so they said, we're going to enforce the law. They didn't change the law. Hmm. And it came down to responsible lending, this responsible lending law. And I want to play this clip about that. So there's a, there was a responsible lending law that had been on the books for 10 years, and the banks had basically been allowed to ride roughshod over it and ignore it. That's why most of the cases of bank victims were people who um, there was a very strong argument for. They shouldn't have been um, given those loans in the first place. Yeah. And and the the, the novice might or the, the layman might think, "Oh, well, you know, th- th- maybe that's the banks being nice to the people." No, 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 no. The banks don't do these loans as favors to people. They get to that loan is an, the minute they write it, that's an asset to the bank, and some the guy who helped approve it gets a gets a bonus straight away, mm. right? And there's and there's trailing commissions and all these sort of things that all came out at the royal commission. So they were writing these willy nilly, and it's a similar thing to um, that that's seen in the Big Short where mm-hmm. they, they go to Florida and they talk to the, to the two brokers, right? And they, and they ask the dumb question, how many do you get turned down? And the brokers just looked at each other and laughed. What do you mean turned down? None of mm-hmm. these loans get turned down. What are you talking about, yep. right? And
1: then they go and ask the pole dancer, which has got like <laughs> three mortgages.
0: That's right. And uh, the main character leaves there and says, there's a bubble, there's a bubble. Short <laughs> it." So this is what was happening. This, this, all this was happening in Australia. And Shipton said, okay, there's a law here for responsible lending. We're going to enforce it. And what did the banks do? They went on a credit strike. They stopped lending money. So we're going to play a clip from, um, I think it's March or so, 2019. This was on, um, there was a YouTube channel. Uh, there was a, it was on Sky, I think, Money Matters. Uh, so this is Tiki Fullerton, and she's talking, she's going she's to show a clip from David Murray, um, and then she's going to interview James Shipton. Uh, so I'm going to play these two parts. We'll just play them back to back, where... What I want you to pay attention to, though, is one of the aspects of this is Tiki Fortin is taking, giving the banks credibility that um, you know the banks that their excuse is real. The banks are saying, "Oh, these law, what you're doing to us is suffocating us, essentially." And James Shipton is saying, "No, the law is the law. We're just enforcing the law, mm. and when that means
1: In just doing what they, sh- what ASIC ought to have been doing for the previous exactly. decade
0: and wasn't." Exactly. So, roll the clip.
4: Well, these last few days has seen an extraordinary face-off between banks and regulators, much of it down at the AFR's Banking and Wealth Summit. The issue, whether the actions of the corporate watchdog ASIC, bearing more teeth these days, is contributing to the credit squeeze, which is making borrowing for families and businesses noticeably much harder. Bankers first. Uh, This was AMP Chair and former CBA Chief David Murray.
2: What we want the banks to do is to, to keep credit formation open and to, to do that um, th- they need to be well run uh, and they have to be able to form judgments themselves as prudent bankers always have. Uh, if we start to close down their capacity by diverting their attention off to millions of pages of black letter law. Uh, the fear of reprisals from regulators, and most importantly the responsible lending laws, then they will not do that. So if if we're to keep credit functioning during a downturn in the economy, and we've had 27 years on the trot, so we, we have to think about it. It's our job to think about it.
4: Well, let's go back to our top story around bank-responsible lending laws. ASIC chairman James Shipton agreed to talk a little more about his view that the banks were peddling a myth in linking the laws to a credit squeeze. I spoke to him earlier today. James Shipton, good to talk to you down at HQ. Now, someone of the weight and the experience of David Murray says, I quote, there's no way that a responsible lending law supervised by a conduct regulator will resolve in a healthy credit formation system.
5: Well, I'm not going to comment to any particular person except to say that I firmly believe that the responsible lending laws which have been around for nearly a decade are a crucial part of a consumer protection mechanism. I also think that they fundamentally assist the uh, good governance and good business of a bank. Uh, And therefore we've always been actively engaged with financial institutions on how to sort of best utilise um, that important mechanism.
4: Well this guy is is also the former head of the Financial Systems Inquiry. Uh, Now he says that the regulator's position really takes us back to the pre Campbell days. What do you think of this? And do and you think uh, Philip Lowe, Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, will be concerned?
5: Well, all I can talk about is you know, our jurisdiction, and our jurisdiction is ensuring that the responsible lending laws, as they have been passed by the Parliament and implemented by the Parliament, sort of stand. Um, we have a consultation actually right now out on how the responsible lending laws operate in the modern day, particularly with technological advancements, more information, more knowledge, uh, not only in an aggregate sense, but also in an individual sense. And therefore, we're happy to hear sort of representations. I don't think it's the time nor the place to getting into a debate or an argument or observations about what one person may say about them, except for I fundamentally believe that they have such a crucial role both in consumer protection but also the goods safety, soundness and business operation of financial institutions.
4: You say there's a consultation program going on into responsible lending running up until May. Uh, banks are making decisions around lending every day. We've got ANZ Chief Executive Shane Elliott and NAB Chair Phil Cronick, and they both agreed that a stricter interpretation of responsible lending obligations was contributing to a credit squeeze this week. Uh, Shane Elliott said it was inevitable the new emphasis meant home buyers and businesses will find it harder to borrow.
5: Well, we haven't changed our view on responsible lending for quite a long time. Yes, we update our guidance, and I think the last time we updated our guidance was in 2016. But I'm struggling to connect the dots that our actions recently have suddenly catalyzed this credit tightening.
4: But I think it's a combination of higher penalties and also how uh, ASIC will look more forensically at how loans are approved. I mean, David Murray, who is also a former banker, said, quote, loan officers would moderate their behavior in a way that would result in creditworthy borrowers either having loans delayed or denied. And it takes much longer to knock back a loan.
5: Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with being thorough, uh, and I don't think that there's anything wrong in ensuring that the laws, as they stand today and as they've stood for nearly 10 years...
4: Even if it contributes to a credit squeeze?
5: Well, I don't think that there is that correlation uh, and I I don't think that we should be jumping to the conclusion uh, that it is the cause. From what I understand, there's a range of contributing factors, and as as I've said, we have a consultation now which we uh, want to hear feedback about any unintended consequences of this particular law, but the law is the law. The law hasn't changed in 10 years.
0: And there you have it. I mean, that is his... Shipton did all that, right? And what he came up against, um, uh, Richard, was the combined power of the banks. It was interesting that in that clip, Tiki Fullerton actually cites David Murray to accuse Shipton of going back to pre-Campbell. So the Campbell report in 1982 was the report that deregulated the entire Australian financial Hmm. system and opened us up to all this whole mess, right? Um, So he's leading that hysteria. And by the way, David Murray was the head of CBA for years, and he's the guy that led the cultural shift in banking away from one where the banks primarily make their money by helping their customers make money, and they get an interest from that, Hmm. right, to one in which... The banks look for all sorts of ways to to fleece the customers through charges and through selling products they don't need, etc. David Murray introduced that to Australia, right? That guy, you know, um, you, you wonder why bankers haven't gone to jail. Anyway, so he's he's delivering the threat, and Tiki Forward in the journo is taking is taking it seriously. Like she's on, she's essentially on the bank side. If you watch mm. the rest, in fact, we'll put the whole. Clip the the link to the whole clip below. You can watch it at your leisure. And here's James Shipton trying to hold the line. The law is the law. What happens to him? He took Westpac to court in the Wagyu and Shiraz case, and, hmm. and lost because the, the judge said, well, if it's if it's not up to Westpac to to um, uh, manage everyone's lives, and if they can, if they have difficulty paying their loan, they can stop eating Wagyu steak. And, and washing, drinking Shiraz, washing, yeah, it, down with washing Shiraz. it down
1: with Shiraz, <laughs> and, and, and subsist on simple affair.
0: And so that was Westpac, sorry, ASIC appealed that as they should have done.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They lost the appeal, and Shipton came under pressure from the Secretary of the Treasury, the Treasurer, and the head of the RBA to drop it. And he only ended up dropping it in 2010, sorry, 2020, because the pandemic was on, right? Mm. And they were saying, this will be too disruptive, et cetera. That's the only reason he dropped it. He wanted to take it to the high court because he wanted to establish the principle of law and they wouldn't let him. Next thing you know, there's a contrived expenses scandal about him and he's drummed out of there, right? He's drummed out.
1: Along with Daniel Crennan. Along with Daniel Crennan,
0: exactly. How do you break the power of a banking oligopoly that can hold the country to ransom, with a credit strike. There's only one way. Yep, you need a public bank. You need a public bank. You need, this could never have happened under the Commonwealth Bank. You need the government to have a bank, it doesn't have to have the 100% of the market, doesn't have to nationalize all the banks, mm. but it'll quickly, if, if, if we set up a public post office bank where every post office in Australia is automatically a branch, and everyone gets a better deal there, you will quickly have the biggest branch network in the country because the four thousand mm. four hundred post offices are greater than all bank branches combined now, and people will want to use it. Users will flock to using it, and those banks will no longer. Those big four will no longer have eighty percent of the market. They might shrink down to fifty or forty percent of the market. Mm. And boo hoo hoo, yep. they will never be able to hop. They will never be a power greater than the government again. That's why you need a national bank.
1: Yep, and banks. You know, the eighty odd years we had the Commonwealth Bank, banks never didn't make money, not during the Depression, not during World yep. War II. They are always profitable. They're always profitable. The big banks, the small banks, the building societies, the mutual societies, yep. they, they don't not make money unless they do stupid things and go broke. Yep. And, and when they do, it doesn't blow back on the rest of the economy. There's no such thing
0: as too big to fail anymore. And we had a banking expert address our um, organisation a couple of weeks ago and he, he gave the example... Um, uh, Mark McGovern I'm talking about actually and he, he made a submission to the broad Banking uh, Senate inquiry into bank closures that when he was growing up in the Darling Downs his town had about 3,000 people and there was 1,500 people in the district and they had six bank branches. Mm-hmm. Six bank branches to serve 4,500 people, right? And these these banks today are telling us they can't afford to have one branch to serve half a state, you know. Anyway, um, but on this, let's continue this theme. We'll so, take a slight detour in the time I've got left. Uh, finally, Greens to the PwC, get thee to a knackery. <laughs> so the knackery is the NAC, National Anti-Corruption Commission. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, N-A-C-C, National Anti-Corruption yeah. Commission. Um, and ha- how many complaints did it get the first day? It was operational. Um,
1: 44, apparently. 44. And it's now up over 100.
0: Yeah, and, and so the, the head has had to, had to sort of warn... Don't don't, yeah, don't don't give us frivolous ones. Yeah, frivolous right.
1: and vexatious complaints, or I'll That's publish right. them and shame you. <laughs> That's
0: right. But they're getting flooded, right? So, but the most interesting one is the fact that the Greens have referred the Price Waterhouse Cooper scandal um, to it. Um, and that'll be interesting how that goes. But I wanted I wanted Richard because he wrote an article about this this week. We're gonna we're gonna talk about ASIC in relation to that, and then in relation to what we were talking about earlier with um, James Shipton. ASIC's uh, commissioner, Sarah Court, this is an... E- so you've got an example here where you show that how ASIC looks for every excuse under the sun not to throw the book at the banks or mm. at a PwC or any of these cases and involves some real mental gymnastics.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one term <laughs> for it that we can use um, on a show with this rating. Um. <laughs> I don't know where they find these people. Well, I know where they found her. She was at the ACCC. So we're talking
0: about Sarah um, Court now, the commissioner.
1: Daniel Crennan's replacement. Yeah. yeah. yeah, The supposed uh, enforcer. So PwC has an Australian financial services license. And PwC is a partnership. So people just come and go and get different roles or overlapping roles and all of these. And it's not held to the same standard of rules as a corporation would be, where its books are public and yeah. you know get gone over by well, to a large extent, get gone over by auditors. I mean, they do the auditing, but they don't get audited, right? Yeah. PwC has a uh, has a financial services uh, license, and it was caught out, as everybody probably knows, um, using secret information from the government to help it that it was consulting on the development of new tax laws than the previous Liberal government, um, you know, ten years ago starting 10 years ago, um, and uh, helping its corporate clients dodge those taxes as soon as they came into effect. Um, and uh, so Labor Senator Deborah O'Neill, who's been one of the two uh, leaders of the Inquisition against yep. uh, into all of this, along with uh, Barbara Pocock from the Greens, quite reasonably asked ASIC, well, why do you not, Why why wouldn't... You know, are you going to revoke their financial services license in light of this, what's come out? And of course, and so Sarah Court says, uh, Well, no, they're not, they haven't, and they won't. Um, she says, uh, I'll read you the quote. This is, what she, this is what she, uh, how she replied to O'Neill. That is an option, however, our assessment is that we are not able to do that in relation to this conduct. Um, the reasoning for this, she explains as, uh, that quote, this is conduct so far as we are currently aware of one or more persons acting individually. <laughs> this is not the conduct. This is not conduct that is undertaken in the name of the company that is the holder of the Australian financial services license. Now, of course, um, O'Neill said, well, that doesn't ring true, you know, uh, because it turns out in court had to admit, um, in, after subsequent questioning that yes, uh, Collins was, uh, she says, uh, her excuse again was that uh, Mr. Collins' conduct was as a partner of PwC, falling outside of ASIC's jurisdiction and not operating under his authorised representative status at the time he was engaging in this mi- misconduct because he signed on, it turns out, he signed on with the, with the federal government as a consultant in November of 2013. Yeah. He was nominated... On PwC's financial services license in December, ah. within weeks at most, possibly days—I yep. don't know—the yep. the exact timeline hasn't been published to my knowledge. But so,
0: so he's on the license. Yep. But she's she's now the reason she's the jurisdiction thing is because PwC is a partnership, not yeah. a corporation, and ASIC enforces the Corporations Act. Yeah,
1: but they also enforce financial services, That's which right. is why they're a banking regulator.
0: That's right, along with Apple. so so this is all important. So. She's saying that even though he had the inf- was privy to the information from the government because mm. he was part of the consulting crew, he passed that on to his colleagues at PwC in Australia and worldwide. And they co- they coordinated uh, the night Joe Hockey announced these tax changes in the budget. An email was sent out. Emails were sent out by these people to all their clients saying we can help you get mm. around these and tax on spec changes.
1: to other companies that they wanted to recruit as clients.
0: And Sarah Court is claiming all that activity is them acting as individuals.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A bunch of individuals acting together. You know, like the banks aren't a cartel, I guess. And then two a day or two later, PWC turns around and proves she's at best incompetent (laughs) by saying by firing people across their government engagement division, their risk their chief risk management officer. Um and the head, the former head, who was at the time head of their uh, uh, financial advisory um, section.
0: Sarah Court's comments there. For
1: being involved in this scandal, just to be clear. Exactly. For, be, for colluding with the guy who's, who was, who's being investigated by the police now for criminal misconduct. So
0: PwC has now been forced to take, to take tougher action against itself than ASIC is willing to take against it. Yep. ASIC, this is, this I mean, is a regulator about, looking for an excuse not to regulate.
1: Talk about not reading the room. I
0: mean, All right. So, in the time we've got left, let's, while we're on Sarah Court, back to the banks. Um, you found, in, in, in light of this, you went back and saw Sarah Court's uh, interview when she did, mm, come, or listened
1: to as a podcast. Listen
0: to, yeah, when she did take over the position Daniel Crennan had had under Shipton, she mm. took it over under Joe Longo, and she's explaining why they dropped the Royal Commissioner Justice Haynes. Um, directive, why not litigate? Mm. So, what did she say about that?
1: Well, she says, uh, and, and bearing in mind, Joe Longo was a complete failure, but uh, on purpose, apparently, according to um, what we've, been, what we've uh, dug up and published, uh, as an enforcer at ASIC earlier on in his career and then became a corporate lawyer in the meantime. Um, this lady was a uh, commissioner at the ACCC before moving across to ASIC. She says, well, you know, uh, it was not a particularly helpful phrase because, of course, there's a, often a myriad of reasons. Myriad means 10,000 in Greek, by the way. <laughs> there's often a myriad know, of yeah. reasons why you might not litigate. So she hastens to add in this interview that uh, the, the banks shouldn't expect not to get sued, though, because, because she says, Joe Longo and I are strong enforcers. And therefore, she says, quote, we just uh, don't really need this phrase to guide our decision making. But then this, almost in the same breath. So she acknowledges, this this, this is December 2022, this interview. She acknowledges that before, during, since the Royal Commission says there's been continuing misconduct by the banks with ASIC receiving, quote, similar numbers of breach reports about systemic issues that are impacting large institutions, um, and she said uh, that, re- that are requiring wide-scale remediation programs. So this is your fees for yeah. no service and, and charging dead people and all yeah. the rest yeah. of the yeah. stuff, yeah. various rip-offs, um, as there were before and have been all along. She says, but, um, but we obviously cannot litigate each and every one of those So then she asks, well, you know, she says we have limited resources and that. So she says, so she has to ask herself, is there a regulatory benefit in suing the Commonwealth Bank or ANZ or whoever it might be year in, year out for some of these compliance issues? End quote. The same thing that they've been doing all along and are still doing now which, but which what, that's what but, she's
0: acknowledging
1: but what would be the regulatory benefit in suing them for all of these things gee I wonder what that might be we can't
0: know? we can't exactly maybe to stop them from doing it year in and year out You might do, think if they're doing it year in if what was the example we used oh someone said oh oh sorry officer you can't find me for speeding here you find me last year for speeding here <laughs> right if they're doing it year in year out you why are the banks are above the law? Well, we've just gone through why they're above the law. There's the regulators view people, right? While we have this system, that's that's why the system, while we have this system of regulation, that's why the financial system is dysfunctional for real people. But we've run out of time. So um, Richard, thank you very much. Appreciate the work you did on that this week. It was very, very enlightening. Thanks for Take the warning seriously that we started with people. Let's keep a close eye on that. But also, I hope we've said enough today to you know, motivate you to keep fighting with us against, to clean up this banking system and for a public bank that can break their power. That's the number one objective. So thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for more of The Citizen's Report.